Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our guest today is Dr. Kyle Ortigo. We're talking about his book, Beyond the Narrow Life, a guide for psychedelic integration and existential exploration. Good day, Kyle. Good day. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here and an honor, too. So, first of all, I want to talk to you about the title of your book. Now, Beyond the Narrow Life, you know, that conjures up a visual image and it gives us something to grab onto. It's a book that takes us beyond whatever we consider to be a narrow life. It's a book about enhancing the parameters of our life. Uh, And I see you shaking your head, yes, so that's accurate. But tell us, please, as a way of introduction, What do you mean when you say in the subtitle, a guide for psychedelic integration and existential exploration? Mm, Yeah. You know, despite writing an entire book, oftentimes in my experience, the title is the hardest part. (laughs) And with this one, it was actually the title, the the Beyond the Narrow Life was the title of my final chapter, which was summarizing um, a lot of the intention I had behind the, the book's journey And that was to go beyond kind of narrow-minded perspectives on life, uh, a sense of lack of agency about what life could be and what life could mean for us as individuals and collectively. And that was the chapter two where I bring in creative appreciation, expression, and creative problem solving. So that was the initial kind of meaning of that title. And then my publisher was like, this would be a great title for the book. And so I, I trusted them in that. And like a lot of things, uh, certainly with psychedelics involved too, there's lots of paradox, um, ambiguity, and multiple layers of meaning. So it's a bit of a projective too, in terms of what that title means for people and, and also what they get out of the book itself. The book I, I created as a kind of structured guide to explore some pretty profound and heavy topics while staying as grounded as possible in our shared consensus reality Um, and to structure in a way where slowly uh, the reader could expand their horizons of what they they reflect on and what they consider important and meaningful in life um, while bringing in the experiential part of that process and not just reading a book, right? So that's why there are so many activities for people to choose from and and to do themselves too. So for people who are listening, uh, is there a takeaway so far that this book is a guide for how to engage in psychedelic uh, journeys, psychedelic experiences? Yeah, I wouldn't go so far as to say that um, because as you and and all of your guests too are very familiar with like the the amount of material that could come up in these non-ordinary states of consciousness uh, is just so vast. So what I was inspired to do with the book initially was to provide a a route to explore some of these types of themes that can come up during a, a psychedelic journey or breathwork sessions in ways that are a bit more systematic Kind of contain something that would function independent of one's psychedelic experience 
but certainly could enhance their um, meaning-making process, integration process, the uncovering of the insights gained and application of those insights in their everyday life. Uh, you know, once the book's been out, I, I've heard from people who've, who've read the book that it was like going through a psychedelic journey, of course, in a very different way, um, just with the, the amount of material that could be evoked emotionally and, and intellectually. But yeah, I think everyone's experience is going to be different. That's part of the creativity of going through an attorney like this. So that tells us something about the psychedelic integration part, which we're going to go into in some detail. Now tell us about the, le the next three words, the last three words in your subtitle of the book, and existential exploration. Mm -hmm. What are you attempting to convey by having that in, in your title, existential exploration? Well, a couple of things. Um, one, we'll start with exploration. Like this is a book and a journey where I'm emphasizing the active exploration of, of questions um, and of, of meaning and uh, uncertainty and just the profound mystery of life and human consciousness. So I, I'm emphasizing that over providing answers to people, right? I think the exploration, that process is um, a meaningful part of the journey. Uh, and the existential part is because for me, uh, I, I work primarily from an integrative existential psychotherapy perspective, which is centering these um, big questions, fears, hopes around death, loss, impermanence, uh, interconnectedness and loneliness and absurdity or meaninglessness and personal meaning and responsibility. That's a big part of the work that I, I the in-depth work that I do with my clients and I think is so valuable. So I believe whether or not psychedelics are a gateway for people into asking those big questions or exploring possibilities, that that's a, an important framework for me. And I, I think for us too, because our answers to those uh, questions, those conflicts we have are, are going to be different based on our individual personalities, the values that we intuitively hold, our cultures, our life experiences. So um, I, I thought that was a an important framework to bring forward in the title too. A, a lot of the books written in a way where, where those key existential concerns are, are part of the trials of initiation, what I call the trials of initiation in the middle part of the book and um, what comes before and after is preparation and integration of any of those insights that were gained along the journey. Well, what, what I'm still wanting to dive deeper into uh, is the use of the word ex existential. existential. You know, I'm with you so far on what you mean by psychedelic integration, and you're going to tell us a lot more about that. And I'm with you so far on what you mean by exploration, and you listed off uh, a, a group of topics that are topics that you go into with your clients and or patients. And uh, I'd like to hear more about each of those and, and examples of those with actual people. That will be very helpful. So we have two things on our agenda. But the third one is your use of the word existential. But that's fascinating to me, uh, in part, because I've been a card-carrying existentialist since I'm a teenager. It, wow. it, it has, uh, it has uh, informed my life, uh, how I live my life, 
uh, and my belief system. And so I'm interested in how you're using it here. I mean, we know, for example, that the base uh, existential philosophy, you know, coming from Heidegger and Kant and Sartre and Camus, uh, expressed that nothing is knowable. And, and good or bad, good and bad are not knowable. They're not absolutes the way the rest of philosophy and religion believes. And that the only thing there is, is how we act to define who we are. That, that, right? That's the basic existential philosophy. You add to it that there's only here and now, and that the future and the past don't exist. And you pretty much, you know, somewhat summed up the philosophy, at least with headlines, right? So how are you integrating that existentialism into your exploration and into your psychedelic uh, integration? All those people that you just mentioned, there there's some overlapping themes and there are differences too. So I, I know there, there's been some debate about whether existential even philosophy is a coherent school of thought. <laughs> so how I use it and what I'm thinking of it as is dealing with questions that we inherit simply by being human in this day and age um, that, you know, cut across a lot of our demographic variables, but um, really are about the human experience. There is certainly a big theme about not knowing, um, confronting absurdity in Camus' words or ambiguity. I like, I like ambiguity. Um, and then the importance of the individual journey to create meaning, uh, create meaning more than find meaning or reconnect with meaning. I'm a bit agnostic in that. I, I don't come from a, a very strong stance that there absolutely is no meaning in, inherent, um, but I do very much uh, emphasize finding our own sense of personal meaning and then living through that as, as often a part of a trial and error process. But it's it's that's how I, I use it in, in this book and in my psychotherapy practice. So take us through some of the steps, the most important steps of embarking on the psychedelic journey. Well, I, as you know, the three main phases uh, that we talk about in psychedelic psychotherapy, and I, I think in a lot of spiritual use of psychedelics too, is the preparation, the experience, and then the integration process that often is cyclical or repeated. Uh, I used that structure when I first heard of that structure in my education and training. I immediately thought of the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell's work, uh, in the in a broad strokes way, the three main phases of the hero's journey, and that was uh, the departure, the trials of initiation, and then the return. And I thought that connection was a fairly easy one uh, to make. And, and sometimes I'd hear people reference Campbell's work in talking about psychedelic journeys. And so I, I thought that was something to explore and, and try to see if we could meld those phases. But I also come from a background quite different. You know, a lot of modern psychology is focused on cognitive behavioral therapy, third wave behavioral therapies, acceptance and commitment, all of these more structured um, act. And the last one I mentioned is more process oriented. 
but structured approaches to doing this, this type of work. And so I wanted to see if I could bring all these uh, schools of thought, often that are in conflict, into conversation with one another to provide some structure to this process for people. Knowing, of course, that everybody's journey and experience with or without psychedelics is going to be unique and distinctive. So I, I thought what would be helpful when talking about these big existential concerns and fears, you know, a lot of schools of thought think that ambiguity, uncertainty, inner conflict, like this is what is fundamental to breeding anxiety. And um, then we have all of our ways of trying to avoid anxiety or cover it up. And a lot of existential um, therapy is actually about bringing that anxiety to consciousness so that we can make more conscious um, decisions of, about how we live life and have more of a sense of agency given the conditions of our lives and, and what is available to us. So I thought that's important kind of deep core work that we all need to do, at least from my perspective, and it's hard. It, it's very challenging. And so the preparation um, would be important for doing that depth of work and also the ongoing kind of maintenance, the integration process. So I saw a parallel there and why I have the middle part of the book, kind of the core is the existential trials of initiation and into this deeper engagement with life in a sense of meaning uh, in the context of uncertainty. Well, it, it said that existentialists deal with the concrete. That's one of the ways they're descri described, right? Things mm -hmm. are very concrete and rather than abstract. Mm -hmm. So the people who deal with things like essence, for example, are dealing with more with abstraction. And, and uh, existentialists are more interested in existence and what we do with our existence. Can, can you, could you give us a, would it be uh, uh, fair to ask you for a case history perhaps of a person or some examples of what people bring to you? I would think most often, and I'm, you mentioned it in your book, of course, the, the, the most prevalent things people bring to our offices are, are anxiety and depression. But then, of course, there are many other, you know, uh, aspects of that, including couples problems, you know, various uh, you know, uh, sexual problems, communications problems and so on. But I'd love to hear from you about if you could give some examples from your from your files and, and how how we could look at those examples within the context of beyond the narrow life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a, a lot of my work has been focused on trauma, trauma treatment, and that includes post-traumatic stress, but also uh, complex trauma. And of course, the one of the more common reactions to trauma is depression itself, not, not classic PTSD. So uh, there's, there's some parallels there that we could talk about. Also, I, I work a great deal with people who are LGBTQ+. And uh, people who are going through the coming out process, several of my clients have started therapy wanting to explore their sense of gender and gender identity and expression. And uh, I think that that example is, is actually a really interesting one in terms of this existential value of um, making one's own choices and uh, the, the challenges of, 
achieving authenticity. But that's often one of the themes too I, I come across in existential therapy literature and, and I emphasize in my practice. I think with, with trauma, you know, so many people are exposed to trauma. One of the, our recent definition, the DSM, there's a study that found, I think 90%, upwards of 90% of adults have some criterion A trauma. Uh, and then when we think about intergenerational transmission of trauma, it just, it, it's almost everybody. But how trauma fits uh, certainly depends on the context of that exposure, what happened. I worked a lot with veterans and the military. So a lot of my veterans would go to war, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, I had worked with Vietnam veterans in World War II too. And they thought they were prepared and then they had these incredibly traumatic experiences or even the threat of random car bombings and things like that, just being in this chronic state of arousal um, was was something that they you can't really prepare for that, right? And then the return to society, which is when I would start working with them, was the real challenge of, of how do I um, make meaning and understand my experiences over there in a very different context? Well, making, uh, reintegrating to society and learning to, to not just, uh, move on really, cause you can't move on from an experience like that, but how to make meaning out of it. And then, um, grow, have a sense of post-traumatic growth. So I think that that journey that I worked with, with a lot of veterans was one that involved confronting the things that, that brought up so much fear and anxiety and uncertainty and helping people feel more grounded and that they can um, you know, make choices that are informed by their trauma, but also not so controlled by it and realize some of the perspective they have that a lot of people just don't by having gone through such uh, difficult experiences. Kyle, I, I understand when you use the example of a returning vet, it's quite clear if my job is to go to work every day and I work from nine to five and during that entire time, I have no idea when somebody's going to shoot me in the back from the from a, a six story building. But I do know that there's an X on my back almost that entire time and I could be shot at any moment. And furthermore, some of my friends actually have gotten shot by just walking around on the street. That's very understandable in terms of coming home with post-traumatic stress. It's after the, the event, you're no longer in Afghanistan, so it's post, the trauma isn't going on, nobody has a gun on your back, but you still have that feeling, we call it post-traumatic stress disorder. I get that. I get, from, of course, from patients that I've worked with, that if you're, you, you, you've been sexually abused as a child, by a male or a female or whatever, then then you, you've been traumatized. Or if you've been beaten, you've been traumatized. But you threw out a number of 90% of the population. So what would be examples of comparatively less impactful, if you will, traumas? In other words, not sexual abuse, not being in Afghanistan on duty, uh, because those are big time traumas, you know, and getting hit head on in a car 
and your car's demolished and you happen to live through it. That's a trauma. Everybody knows that. You don't have to define it for them. But give me some examples of trauma in our culture growing up and in our, around us that would lead to, you're quoting some expert as saying, 90% of the culture have been traumatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in that study and, and, you know, in the DSM, a lot of the definition includes a relatively realistic perceived threat of something happening even it doesn't or a witnessing of something or and this is one of the more controversies uh, about what is considered a trauma by criterion a some people talk about capital t trauma versus um, lowercase trauma but even a sudden loss or a violent loss of a loved one uh, so these these are some examples but the, the exposure to, to even the capital T trauma is, is pretty high. You know, from an existential standpoint, you know, a lot of these theorists were uh, European. They lived through World War One and Two. Like there was a big context of some of these, this line of thinking that's important to acknowledge. Um, and, you know, nowadays, the, the context, too, where we're having to confront, I think more and more people confront these deeper questions and sense of groundlessness uh, about what's going on in the world, how to make sense of things, is that we're exposed to so much knowledge of suffering around the world and an awareness for many people about ecological problems, um, global issues, ongoing war, and there, there's not this, this um, you know, idealized sense of peace. It's always one thing after another. So I think collectively we're, we're all facing some of these things that are essential to this definition of trauma um, that is also what people from existential schools also highlight as uh, important to recognize and not to avoid or deny or diminish or try to say, uh, you know, use some, some way to uh, ignore these parts, these difficult parts of life. It, it's this is a very complicated issue because I know treatment for trauma is getting very popular in the United States. But when I hear ninety percent of the public are included, there if we include too much in a diagnosis, it almost makes the diagnosis meaningless. You know, for for example, if ten percent of the public have headaches we have a pathological condition and those 10% need to be treated. If 90% of the public have headaches, we might come to the conclusion that having a headache is part of the human condition and you better just get used to it because part of what life's about is having a little pain in your head. And that's not something we're going to treat and get rid of any more than we're going to treat having five fingers or two eyes. It's just part of what is. And so by that same token, we have 90% of the public traumatized. One could take the position, well, that's just part of life. You know, you're going to have trauma. You better get with it. And as we're not going to treat 90% of the public and send them to clinical psychologists, but, you know, it's not going to happen. So it just is what it is. Of course, I would assume that probably the people who come into therapy are self-selecting and the ones who come to you for trauma are going to be the ones who have the most 
you know, they're not going to be the ones who have, quote, a little trauma. They're going to be the ones who, when they hear a firecracker, they lay down on the floor because they think it's a gun. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and two, like the, the trauma definition versus post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder, like all these things, um, you, you add more kind of filters. So most people who have a trauma history don't currently meet criteria for PTSD uh, right? or uh, even depression. So uh-huh. it's a really important point. Uh-huh. So thank you for bringing that up. I, I was influenced, and I, I'd like your opinion on this, because we studied and, and have been studying it at different developmental times in history uh, because of our age difference. But I, I was influenced by the work of Kinsey. And mm-hmm. to remind our listeners, Kinsey said, if you have totally gay or homosexual on one end of the continuum, and totally straight or heterosexual on the other end of the continuum. It's important to remember that it's a continuum. So it's not like, yes, the people on the two ends are either all straight or all gay, but most everybody else is somewhere along that continuum. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with maybe a, a totally bisexual person might be exactly in the middle, but all the, you know, those who are at six, seven, or three and four and five are also what you might call of, of, of different orientations, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And so if you look at it from that Kinsey perspective, similar to what we were talking about with trauma and 90%, from the Kinsey perspective, that the LBGTQ plus might be a much larger percentage than than uh, ten five or ten percent, right? Because you, yes. the the middle of that bell curve, if the middle is bisexual, that, that you know each side of that curve takes in thirty four percent of the population. It's mm-hmm. a <laughs> it's mm-hmm. a very large group. That's right. Yeah, and the data I was speaking to was about how one identifies, which we also uh-huh. know is different than how one behaves and what uh, one's actual attraction is and fantasies like. There's, I don't know if you know of Klein's work in the 80s, but he came up with a whole grid that uh, exploded the Kinsey scale into all these different dimensions and, and also across time, present, um, past, and one's sense of ideal, ideally, if they could control their sexuality, um, what that would be. And of course, we also have the, the issue that in a vast portion of the United States, one might be somewhere along the continuum, but in terms of what reality says, you better tell everybody and act like you better be at one end, and that's heterosexual. You don't yes. want you don't want to be in a small town in Idaho and flaming out as a gay person. At least I don't think so. Maybe times have changed, but it could still be dangerous in many areas of the country. Let's Absolutely. come back now. We said we had an agenda. We're going to come <laughs> back to you taking us through. The psychedelic part, a guide to psychedelic integration. Take us through some steps. What's it like? A person is considering going on the journey. So the the first part, you know, is making an informed decision. And again, I wrote this book to be independent of one's psychedelic experiences, knowing that, you know, not everyone has access. We don't know how things are going to go. It's looking hopeful in terms of decriminalization, rescheduling, but access um, to these experiences will be an issue moving forward. But I, I have it as kind of a parallel so that I start with um, an informed consent process about 
you know, just in general with life, are you at a place where you feel like it's worth asking some deeper questions about your uh, sense of self, the sense of reality, your meaning? And if you say yes to that journey and that experience, you know, how how do we set you up for success? How do we make sure that you you have the tools that you need as much as possible, knowing that things can be unpredictable in life in general, and to be able to cope with any stress that comes up when asking some of these bigger questions or you know, taking the time to dive in to your own personal history or even confronting some of the, the deeper collective things that we're confronting in society. Um, so that, that's the first chapter and the part. And what I, I like in, in thinking about telling a story or setting the stage is, you know, how can we set the stage of these questions? And for me, it had to be thinking about the cosmos in terms of space and time from a, a purely modern scientific standpoint, what we know about the expansiveness of the known universe. To put into context all these um, big questions that we have um, and this just confronting the mystery of it all and how small and large, depending on which perspective we're taking subatomic to, to the cosmic, um, we, we are. When we, and that for me is like the perspective taking that ends all perspective taking. If, if we know um, that's where we, we're living, as far as we can tell, then that can um, really put into bold relief some of these questions and uh, that sense of um, our in small lives, but so important lives, because it's the only one that we know that we have. It's a, it's a pretty heady stuff there, Kyle, getting into the, into the cosmos, you know. There's a part of me that's interested in that, but there's also a part of me that sort of resonates to what uh, Woody Allen said. You know, he said, there are these people who are just constantly studying the cosmos and how to get around in it, and I'm just trying to find a restaurant in Chinatown. (laughs) I didn't know that quote. I like it. (laughs) Yeah, right? So, you know, there's a part of me uh, that's still just, uh, you know, happy, happy finding my way around San Francisco. Uh, let alone, you know, this other stuff for contemplation. And you may have a different clientele. I mean, the the clientele, the people who call me on the phone who are seeking psychedelic journeys, they typically have either issues. For example, a couple who's having communication issues and they've heard that MDMA is wonderful for letting the defenses down and speaking authentically to one another. So they want to try that. Or they have some trauma, you know, serious trauma of uh, from childhood, and they want to take LSD because they've heard that they could more rapidly get into that trauma and so on. But they're not looking to really get into big philosophical issues. Pretty much when people come in and they're, paying money for the service, they, they, they want to deal with something and then have some kind of hopeful success with that something. Is that your experience as well? And then how do you relate to this you know, very uh, intellectual and heady material that you've beautifully written about? Yeah, so, so I wrote the book not as like a guide for 
our, our clients. You know, everyone goes through the same journey. You start in the same place. I wrote it to be its kind of own thing for people who, who are ready to, to explore these pretty heady, heavy and heady um, things, you know, uh, kind of guided route to do that instead of so piecemeal. My, my work with people, you know, the cosmic stuff comes up for some of my clients. They, they often volunteer. There are a few times um, when I think we, we get into our entrenched patterns and we're feeling just kind of stuck and um, not knowing where to go that for some of my clients, I, I've assigned like the cosmos, just the first episode of the cosmos series. And that connects them to this sense of awe and a separation from their personal history, personal um, individual suffering and loneliness and disconnection to something much larger than not just themselves, but all of us. And in that is uh, kind of a paradoxical, yet totally reasonable, in my view, sense of interconnectedness and mystery, right? I, I think both of those things are important. And it, for me, that can be a part of this process of moving towards authenticity and not taking in other people's um, very certain views of the world and life's meaning and right and wrong um, as at just face valid and correct, given this bigger context that we're all in. So that's sometimes how it, it it's woven into my work, but it's not session one or two, right? Like it is in the book. You, you used a word that we hear a lot of nowadays, authentic mm. being authentic could could you give some an example or more than one of inauthentic communication mm. what is a person like when they're not being authentic you know this brings me back to thinking about a lot of the work i do with lgbtq people um, in the coming out process a lot of times they uh, i think of some of my people who end up transitioning genders they speak to how they learn to perform to be, for example, a man if they're assigned male at birth. And so some of this actually had involved with some of my veteran clients going into the military. Um, what was been described in the past as an escape into hypermasculinity as a way to perform in the ways that um, in our culture are viewed as very masculine and as a way to prove themselves that they can fit in, that they belong, right? There's th those fundamental needs and that they can be accepted. So the path to authenticity for someone like that is being able to find a place where you can even explore your gender, explore these things that were often hidden inside them and so to share, right, with another person, and that, that ideally is safe if they have access to psychotherapy, um, and then find out what their core often intuitive sense of self, and this is, I'm going to footnote all these complexities in terms of like existential thought and even Buddhist thought about is there a core self or not. Um, but a lot of people have an intuitive sense of what feels right and authentic to them. And certainly with gender, most of us don't even have to, to really reflect on it or question it. But for some of my clients, they do. So it's the first act of courage to ask that, openly talk about that, and then find that um, they identify as a woman, for example. And then 
moving towards authenticity is expressing their sense of gender. And this is bigger than gender, but gender is one of the ones we take for granted so easily. So it's a good example. But express that in how they present themselves to others, knowing that it's, it comes at a risk, unfortunately, because of transphobia and because that there are these kind of stereotypes about how we are supposed to behave um, based on our gender um, that are culturally bound, et cetera. So that's one example of how this move to authenticity works with that. Um, But it works for all of us in one way or another in terms of what we value in life or what our personal values are, what we want to do with our life versus um, what we're told we should do how we should behave, what jobs we should have. Should you mention the nine to five? Should we do those nine to five, you know? Um, and what risks are we willing to take? I can see from, from what you're saying that there's a, there are a lot of political implications for what you're saying, because you're, you're, you're really talking about people having the opportunity to reconstruct how they are in the world, their their very way of life. And you're shaking your head yes, that you agree with that. If that be the case, that does have huge political implications because a government and a culture want things the way they are. They're not looking for a large number of people that be threatened if large numbers of people started rearranging their very ways of life. And it makes me wonder whether, to what extent that threat that goes with a psychological reorientation and a behavioral reorientation as a result of taking a certain medicine is part of why the government has been so suppressive and repressive of psychedelic science for the last 60 years. Yeah, there's, I mean, that argument has been made for sure, and it's a fairly convincing one. You know, the the question, what we're kind of speaking to, too, is like this deep sense of freedom, like from an existential standpoint, which is not this kind of freedom is good, hunky-dory, always positive, but it comes with responsibility and um, not knowing, too, like how to make these choices always in in our lives. I think the the question that's worth exploring is, you know, how free can individuals be in a society and the the tribe, the state, the country actually still function in a way that the collective good is, is really valued and upheld mm-hmm. at a standard. Um, so this is where we get into the ethics and what's important to me and my work clinically, I work with mostly individuals. I do some work with couples too. Um, but even in the book is like, we have to think about our context of this interconnectedness and how our decisions impact others and not as a way to restrain our individual friends, a, a sense of autonomy and freedom and, and choice, but so that we're, we're really taking to heart the implications. And this is the question of kind of ethics and, and that whole journey of, of what this means. So sure, I mean, gosh, if we could envision a world where people have the maximum amount of freedom 
that they can use and, and still feel like that sense of agency. And we're not just complete individuals who do whatever we want that affects others' people. Like these are the extremes, right? That, uh, you know, finding some middle way, some balance, some synthesis, I think is worth exploring. So now moving a bit from the abstract to the very concrete, an argument has been made by some that black people should go to black therapists and that uh, Latino people should go to Hispanic therapists. And where are you on that topic? And should LGBT and Q uh, Q and P people only go to therapists who are in their group, or can they see like what you might call a straight therapist? And can straight folks go to queer therapists? Where where, where are you on that uh, topic? Uh, well, it's it's a nice segue to my previous point. Like I think the individuals should choose, right? So some some queer-identified people will want to go to a queer-identified therapist, and some don't. I think oftentimes people, at least in the longer-term depth work that I do, like people see different therapists in different stages of their lives, and there's a trial and error and and what fits and what doesn't. Um, But there's so much beyond these relatively um, surface-level identities that are different. So even within these umbrellas, right, um, there's so much diversity within African American, within gay, within lesbian, trans. Like these are huge. That's why we have this kind of ridiculous problem of LGBTQ plus, like IAA. Like it just goes on and infinitely. Um, so I, I think wh- by centering the individual choice, their sense of agency, that that's really important to me. And then you know, try it out. Does, does this match with this therapist? So I don't think there's a rule like that that we should follow. Um, I absolutely think we should respect people's autonomy. Yeah, and the other side of the rule, of course, is that if you take the position that we, regardless of your sexual orientation, your skin color, your hair color, or whatever else, we share a common humanity, and that's the underlying common theme than the particular. I'm, I've also been influenced by the study that Consumer Reports did some years ago, and they did a repeat study on it, which indicated, did you see that? It was, that the most important variable in the success of psychotherapy is the alliance between the patient and the therapist, how they feel about each other as people. When there's a good connection, the therapy's more successful. When there's a more reserved, distant, or not a friendly connection, the ther- regardless of the tactic of the therapist, the therapy is less successful. And that makes so much sense to me, that study, that you know, I, was, uh, I was influenced by it. Um, what folks are not good candidates for psychedelic psychotherapy? Ooh, good meaty question. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this, we could have so so many uh, discussions about this and hopefully over time with research, we'll, we'll figure this out from a data driven perspective. I know, you know, with randomized control trials, things start certainly very conservative. Oftentimes they continue to be conservative. Uh, in terms of who's allowed in, who's viewed as a, a appropriate candidate or not, you know the some of the common things that rule people out are personal or family history of some psychotic disorder or bipolar 
But of, yeah. of course, I've heard plenty of cases where people with that history go through ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, for example, and have a positive response. So there's always variation um, and complexity. Yeah, it's complex, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I've heard the same thing and read the papers that, for example, that bipolar people should not engage. And then at the same time, we have Ayelet Waldman's book, A Really Good Day, where she talks about having been bipolar for 20 years, took everything in the pharmacopoeia that Western medicine had to offer in 20 years, and nothing worked. And then she microdosed with LSD, and lo and behold, she got positive results. So that's just validating what you said, you know, that we, we just we just need a lot more. We need a lot more research. There are physiological conditions. So, for example, if a person has high blood pressure or occasional tachycardia, then you, they might not be a good candidate for a psychedelic that has amphetamine in it, such as uh, MDMA whereas LSD does not have amphetamine and it might be okay. So, but those are things that one wants to, uh, one wants to uh, consider, of course. Do you think there's an age at which you would recommend that people wait until they've achieved that age or have achieved something else in life as kind of a milestone before they engage in psychedelic uh, psychotherapy? Mm. I'm sure your mind works like this too. I I think of my answer and then I think of all the opposites, like cases or examples of, you know. Yes, that's what we we have to do to be Mm -hmm. be safe. Of course, we have to think that way. Yeah. And and I I think, you know, the the question is within what culture, because some cultures where it's part of the initiation to adulthood where these um, you know, very meaningful ceremonies that are set up at these transition periods of life, um, that, that that's the expectation. Everyone has this shared experience that this is when it happens or this is when it's indicated. And I, I think if there's something like that that we eventually can come up with, that would be a really interesting um, way to reinforce this sense of shared humanity, interconnectedness, and to mark these major developmental milestones into adulthood, um, even uh, around like the transition to retirement or the dying process or, or marriage, like the the timing is important. And I, I don't think we're there in terms of making some sort of general recommendation. I think what's most important is whenever someone chooses to explore this route, that they do so in as safe and respectful of a setting as possible. And that certainly can look different for different people, given um, what's available to them in the circumstances. But, um, you know, you, you never know what you're really going to get in these experiences. So I think that that theme of respect is, is one that I bring forward. In your book, you mentioned um, a website that people can go to to get uh, information about a safe places to get a psychedelic journey. Am I correct? Did I read that right? And if I did, please elaborate. Yes. So that, that's probably psychedelic.support. And right at this stage, right? So this is for above ground legal work right now. So yes. psychedelic support is a directory of licensed professionals and clinics who offer above ground legal integration services so the application of the insights or meaning making from people's 
journeys that they've done. For example, if they travel to, to Amsterdam or Peru um, or Mexico or Jamaica, um, having some support after that experience and trying to apply any of their insights or make many of their experiences. That's one uh, type of service that's available. And I already alluded to it earlier too, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, especially in the Bay Area, but it's spreading around. This is something that is legally available and that there, there are people who think about this very deeply about how to um, maximize the potential benefits of ketamine and, and it's not done in the context, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, we know it's not done in the context of just going to the hospital and getting an IV drip, but that therapy is an integrated part of the experience. So that, that's something that's available now too. So there's some ketamine clinics that are there on that site. Uh, and I, I may have missed this. Did you, do you reference the SAGE Institute in your book? Uh, no, I, I know of the SAGE Institute, but I, I um, work with Polaris or have worked with Polaris more closely. And where, yes. is, where is Polaris, uh, Kyle? In, in San Francisco. It's actually in, in the Castro, I think Castro and 18th, around and, there. And they're doing ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? Yes. yes. I, I think you'd really enjoy meeting uh, doctors uh, uh, Genesee uh, Herzberg and Jason Butler, two clinical psychologists like yourself, who started the SAGE Institute and uh, in Berkeley, which you, you've heard of, of course. I, I, I'd be happy to introduce you as well. I, I think you'd really like them. And they, okay. they yeah. And they've been doing um, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy during the pandemic by mm-hmm. having the pe- people pick up their prescription. They go home, and they both, the, the patient in their home and the doctor in the clinic uh, are both on Zoom, and then they give them the instructions over the Zoom, and they sit with them and guide the whole trip uh, via Zoom. It's uh, really, really quite something. I, I, so that's just uh, you know for your for your reference. Um, do you find that? Well, you're in a tough spot then. I mean, because the places that you can refer to, or that or that psychedelic support can refer to are really places where a person can go for integration, which, as you've explained and continue to explain and talk about in depth in your book, integration is what takes place after you've had a psychedelic experience, by the very definition, integrating the experience. But there aren't places except for the ketamine places that we can refer them, and please correct me if I'm mistaken here, that we can refer them for an actual psychedelic experience. Yeah, I mean, there's so much gray area too, right? But being in the Bay Area, people are finding ways to have these experiences regardless. So there's still a a great need um, for those people who have already had these experiences and and need to to work with it. So Um, Kyle, if a person wanted to go and had the wherewithal, financial wherewithal, to go to, let's say, Mexico, uh, Peru, Jamaica, and Amsterdam are much further, but Mexico. Are there ways or websites or places where they can find out who the reputable people are in Mexico? Because, for example, I have a lot of hesitation with regard to Peru and, and South America with regard to people going down there for ayahuasca journeys to see, uh, we don't know who. 
It could be anything from a a 90-year-old deeply experienced shaman to someone who's making a quick buck by giving people ayahuasca. How do we protect it? Do you, is there, do you know of any place where there's a information safe just on Mexico? I, I don't know a centralized place uh-huh. that provides you know consistent, clear feedback. I, I do think this is one of the bigger needs that we have. You know, there are instances of people acting um, unethically and, and kind of cross-culturally be viewed as unethical and crossing sexual boundaries or um, really harming people. And so sometimes there are, there are increasing number of reports online. So I think doing our research, if people are going down that route, um, not looking just at someone's website is important. Um, but I'm not in a place where I, I was able to go and um, co-facilitate a synthesis retreat in Amsterdam. So I had some direct experience seeing how they work. So that that was um, great. So I can speak a little bit to, to that group, but I, I'm not in a place in general to like really recommend or say don't do any of these things. And I think that absolutely is a need that we're going to have, and that would be one of the benefits, you know, if things are rescheduled or legalized, is that we could um, do that more openly and systematically. Because a lot of people are interested in this work, but for different reasons than healing and transformation in the service to the greater good. Do you think it would be helpful to the listeners if you just described a bit about uh, the, the work at, at Synthesis in Amsterdam and, and what it's like? Sure, yeah. So Synthesis and a lot of the options that we just referred to broadly are based on a retreat model. So it's maybe a three days to a week. When I was there, there was a, a three-day experience so those phases I alluded to earlier, the preparation, medicine session, integration, that's part of the three-day experience uh, at Synthesis. And the first night is, and it's, this is group-based too, which is different than a lot of the Western research, though we're starting to do group studies, which I think is the wave of the future. Um, go around and prepare people. A lot of the people, they had never had, it was about half and half, 50-50, and never had any psychedelic journey. Some had... Um, had psychedelic experiences in the past. Some had even been at the retreat before. But starting to build in that preparation phase, because it's a group, a sense of safety and connection with the other people there uh, was part of that first night. Doing some experiential activities um, too, right, to get people used to opening up or to going inwards. Some of it involved closed eyes, um, meditation. And then the the second day was the psilocybin truffle experience. So the truffles are in this kind of legal gray area in the Netherlands. And so people can serve themselves truffles. That's the underground part of the mushroom that has psilocybin. And there is a ceremony room and then several co-facilitators who can come to people if they need some additional support. Um, and you know, there's some one-on-one kind of coaching that happens before that too. And so that's the big ceremony day uh, in you know six to eight hours typically, but people have their own metabolism and come out in different places. And then uh, coming together with a group to share um, what f- people feel comfortable sharing about the experience. It doesn't have to be details. Um, getting some support. It's, it's a very emotional experience, right? This part of this work is um, being vulnerable 
with with others, with oneself and um, with others, and hopefully in a very safe environment. That's why it's so sensitive. And then the next day uh, is starting the integration work. So even though these three phases are, you know, in three days and they're five day versions longer, uh, multiple day versions like this, these process, especially the integration is an ongoing unfolding one that, that doesn't have a clear end. Um, but that that's the structure, that synthesis. Thank you. You know, sometimes, Kyle, we do an interview. I'm sure you've done many. I've done many. And then after the interview, we have a thought in our head. Gee, I wish I would have said, and then we think of something that we wish we would have said during the interview. So I'd like to pause for a, a few seconds and give you an opportunity to reflect and see if there's anything you want to add before we close. Well, I would just say with, with the book, you know, it's a hybrid workbook style. There's so many activities. It's structured as uh, an individual journey yeah, beyond the narrow life. But what I think would be really engaging what I've heard from people doing post going to one of these psychedelic retreats or just with some close friends or their partner is to do it together and parallel. And then to like, you don't even need a therapist if you're just exploring these, these deeper questions and you feel ready to do so. Like this is a way of really building intimacy with people and your life, friends, um, family, or strangers who you had this, these powerful experiences on retreat with and you come back together. Um, so I think there's a real opportunity there. And sometimes a lot of my book is influenced on the hero's journey and existentialism. Like the criticism sometimes is it's too individualistic. And I think the interpretation of that can be the case, but a way to, to really um, foster our sense of interconnectedness and authenticity often is relational in some way. So that, that's one thing I, I'd recommend. Thank you, Kyle. And thank you very much for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It was a pleasure talking to you. And for you listeners, a reminder that his book, Dr. Kyle Ortega, is Beyond the Narrow Life. Beyond the Narrow Life. You can get it easily, I'm sure, on Amazon. Please join us again next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for, my, for life, the liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.